Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. As always, in each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And now that we are well into the works of 1970, having looked at The Maze of Death, um, it's time to to look at the first of Dick's stories from 19 um, from the 1970s. And just to be clear, there's not that many short stories that Dick wrote uh, pretty much for the rest of his career after the 1960s. As I've talked about many times in this podcast, really the last great hurrah of stories was 1964 to 66, where he, he wrote about a dozen of them. And then after that, they were pretty sporadic. Um, in fact, uh, this story that we're going to look at today, uh, Pub- written in 1971, not published uh, until after he died, is called Cadbury, the Beaver Who Lacked. And it is, it's simply a, it's a posthumously published story that he never got out during his lifetime. And if you don't include that story, there's only 10 stories that he published over the course for the rest of his life, um, mostly in the 1970s, but there are four he published in 1980 and in 81. So again, as as you know, as this podcast has evolved, we focus more on the novels, just because that's where Dick's career has shifted to, um, and that's gonna you know we're gonna come to stories occasionally. They're not my favorite set of stories. I kind of like this one, the Cadbury, the Beaver Lot, because it's one of his last stories where it really deals with the issue of of the family and monogamy and relationships. Of course, that's an overriding obsession with Dick, but not something that's the major focus. I think of his 1970s and 80s works in the same way it really was a major theme in the, his works from the 50s and 60s. But Cadbury, the Beaver Who Lacked, is, is kind of almost a meta tale re- looking at his views of, of relationships. Also, maybe capitalism. I, I think this is a really interesting story that really looks at relationships as something almost commodified, something almost... Uh, you know, like the capitalist marriage. And we've seen relationships like that before uh, in Dick's stories. We've seen kind of the undead marriages, the marriages that live on after after the divorce. We see the marriages that are adulterous. We've seen the marriages that the families that are very much of convenience. We see all, all sorts of different types of relationships in his work. Um, but one that comes up a lot is the relationship that's really a, a commodity exchange almost. And of course, if you know anything about, you know, history, or the history of the family or anthropology, we see this all the time, right? That the first origin of marriage is tied very closely to property and tied closely to property relationships. And marriages were often exchanges of, of wealth between families and alliances and things like that, not just among the aristocratic people, but among society at large. So the the theme of a, a, a you know capitalist marriage is, is a big one. And it's something I think people on the left have struggled with is how, to, how you know, should we def- redefine marriage? Is this part of our theme of, of this is what we're after? And I would say even in socialist nations, who, where they did achieve some degree of women's rights and made progress in marriage law and things like that, like China in 1950, you know, the, they're still kind of were stuck in a very old pre, a capitalist or a, a proprietarian view of, of family. 
So um, Dick is, I don't think it's something that's very consciously on Dick's mind. I mean, he doesn't, you know, make it a major theme. He never talks about, he doesn't really reflect on what he says about marriage, but it's something we as readers can, can see it come up again and again. So it's worthy of, of examination. And I like the Cadbury, the Beaver Lack because it does that. So anyways, this story uh, was written in 1971 at some point. It was not published during his lifetime, though, but it is in the Collected Stories of Philip K. Dick in the fifth volume. It's about 15 pages long, fairly lengthy for the stories Dick would write later on in his career, but not, not very long. Um, it's not, it's, of course, it's a draft. It's not polished. It, it certainly would have been edited or polished up had it been published, but it's just something that Dick... Dick wrote, and I don't really know much more about its background except for that. So anyways, uh, our main character is Cadbury, uh, and he's a beaver who works at saving poker chips by performing different jobs throughout um, his life. He often meditates on three rare blue chips that he saved up, as well as many others he's earned. Now, right away, we have here the typical kind of bourgeois man, right, who's working to earn money, right, or what those blue chips could represent could be anything, right, the car, the, the wife, the, the, the house, the, the patio, whatever. His wife, Hilda, nags him to work more so he can earn a larger stack of white chips. And, you know, I'm not quite sure what he was trying to get at with the different colors of chips, but obviously we're in the, the, the we got a bourgeois family here. She accuses him of not doing enough or not having enough drive and energy. He takes some chips and goes to see Dr. Dratt on his wife's orders for therapy. And I, this, I'm almost convinced, is something that probably happened to Philip K. Dick at some point in one of his relationships where a wife said, like, you're not making enough money or your books aren't selling enough, so you go get a better job and you go to shrink to find out a better path in your life. So he goes to the psychiatrist, Dr. Dratt, nice, nicely chosen name there, and he confesses that he hates his wife and he dreams of murdering her. He tells Dratt also about a dream he has where he bought a piece of candy only to find a blue chip in the wrapper. And these are the blue chips that he really covets. From the session, Cadbury concludes that he should have went to college to become a psychiatrist. At home, he gets a note from a bird. It's a fantasy novel, but whatever. He, he you know, I guess instead of postmen, they have birds, like Game of Thrones ravens or something. He gets a note from the bird, and on the note, it reads only, I love you. And it's from Jane Feckless Foundfully. That's the name. Jane Feckless Fondly. It's a woman he's never heard of. I don't know, woman? I, I, maybe a beaver woman? Beaver female? He does return the letter to Jane, professing his love for her and detailing his marital problems to her. It's, it's almost like a personal ad, almost, like someone or uh, someone might, you know, in a, in a frustrated marriage, you know, respond to personal ads or something and then confess all their problems to this anonymous potential lover. So he does that with Jane. Um, now, at some point, his wife asks who he is writing and asks who this Jane Feckless fondly is. Hilda, the wife, says that she actually was the one who wrote the original letter. Cadbury is devastated, but he realizes that there must be a real Miss Foundfully somewhere. So that's when he writes this personal ad asking for someone to discuss political science and theology with. Now, I don't think he really means there must literally be a Mrs. Soundfully, but there must be someone like that, right? Someone who he can love more authentically than his wife, you know, and someone who's not going to, you know, cheat him the way his wife did. He places the ad in a tin and he floats it down the river. That's how personal ads work in this fantasy world. Cadbury gets a response to his letter. Cadbury is at first hesitant, but the, the quote-unquote woman, uh, her name's Carol Stickyfoot, assures him that she is not his wife. He does double-check this time. He 
asks her to send proof and quickly Cadbury falls in love with Carol Stickyfoot and that he confesses this later on to Dr. Dratt during another therapy session. Dratt says that, St that Stickyfoot was his previous patient. Now during work one day Cadbury receives a package from Carol Stickyfoot with three blue poker chips. He takes this as a sign of love for her, for, for him. He goes to Carol's house again professing his love for her and he tries to show off his philosophical knowledge by discussing Zen Buddhism. He tells her about his wife, his studies, his humble home, and he recites a poem he wrote for her. It's, it's really kind of sweet. He tells her that he wants to leave Hilda because she is preventing him from fulfill, fully fulfilling and living his life. She, uh, Sticky Foot accuses him of not fully understanding Zen because he's seeming trying to find a perfect person, and that's not the Zen approach to things, right? The I guess it's almost like the Taoist approach is kind of hinted at here, too, that you kind of just go along with the life you've been given. You don't struggle against it too much, and you find happiness by kind of going with the way the river flows. And that might be a theme in Zen as well. Uh, notice him bringing up Zen again, something Dick did in The Black Box, um, and to a certain degree in and a few other stories. Now, Mrs. Stickyfoot at this point becomes a group of people, and there's kind of a mystical experience where she starts to break up into a group of people. And we got basically th uh, three people. We have a semi-oriental girl, and this is the suggestion of comrad comradely love, like the love of a comrade. And, you know, this is the age of Maoism that Dick is writing, and he's, you know, has the kind of political comradely platonic love presented as an oriental girl. Another is a plump, and this suggests motherly love. And then the third is an immature girl suggesting his future daughter. So his his ideal maid is a mixture, I guess, of his mother, his daughter, and someone he can have like a true kind of friendship with, the, the, this comradely love. And they each go on to explain the terms of their relationship. The first promise is only a transitory relationship. The second will stay with him for a quote-unquote unspecified period of time and will only keep his house running well as long as he pays. So this is maybe not so much his mother, but maybe his wife, uh, kind of the wife asking money and then kind of in exchange for money kind of keeping his house. The third tells him that she will never live with him, but will look in on him from time to time. Now, Sticky Foot, or I think it's actually the girl version of Sticky Foot, this avatar of sticky foot accuses him of rape and of being a child molester in turn all three women begin asking cadbury for some of his blue poker chips but com but um, compete suggesting they reach a better bargain for him in the end cadbury realizes that he's fading away in the face of these women he tries to accept escape these three women but cannot the asian lady eventually leads him to a beach but cadbury stays behind the group and the plump woman tells cadbury she loves him and and that's the story we get. So it's it's rather unresolved how Cadbury, if he ever finds love or ever finds happiness, clearly it's it's presented as an almost impossibility that you'll be able to find someone to fit that, right? And it's a very bleak. It's a very bleak view of relationships and of, of women. And the difficulty of finding someone who's perfect, the idea that people change when you get to know them or after you confess the love for them is something I think is very much on Dick's mind in this story. And then over all of this is this idea of a relationship as a commodity exchange. Now, Dick's, this is really an epic story on monogamy, I think. It, it puts together a lot of what he's written before about this. It's just so meta, and it's a bit weird, and it doesn't really work as a story. It's, it's really a sketch of something. 
um, it's really too honest in a way. There's really no subtlety here at all. It's almost like you can imagine like Dick had a fight with, you know, someone in his life and then wrote this story. It was never even sent to an editor. So you get the sense maybe he really did just filed away, you know, and wrote it in a kind of a moment of frustration. It's really a private experiment on the utter alienation of the traditional marriage. The story is about a beaver named Bob Cadbury who suffers life with an exploitative and nagging wife, Hilda. He does not enjoy his job. He really only enjoys collecting these blue poker chips. And these are serving as currency. And the different colors seem to have different values. Now, he's a beaver, so he works in construction. And his nagging wife judges his value against that of all other husbands. Quote, Look at you. You really ought to see a psychiatrist. Your stack of white chips is only approximately half of that of Ralph, Peter, Tom, Bob, Jack, and Earl, all who live and gnaw around here, because you're so busy wood-fathering around your goddamn blue chips. End quote. So what he loves is getting in the way of the wealth that his wife wants him to acquire. Now, his subsequent visits to the psychiatrist turn into a prolonged cathartic rant about his miserable situation with his wife, but leaves him with no clear answers. And again, we get the failure of psychiatry, something Dick uh, comes back to all the time in his work. On his way home, he receives this letter from a woman declaring her love for him. Curious and eager to start an affair to free himself somewhat from his wife. Now, it's, he's not really thinking about divorce at this point. He's thinking of just kind of an escape. In the reply, Cadbury writes freely of his anxieties. Quote, the fact is that I love you too, and I'm unhappy in my marital relationship with a woman I do not now and actually never really did love. And I'm also quite dispirited and pessimistic and dissatisfied by my employment, end quote. And this is what he confesses to an absolute stranger. Now, this turns out to be his wife, so he's confessing to his wife, but he can only do that, you know, thinking she's a potential lover. She was the author of the original letter and simply wanted to trap her husband writing his adulterous epistles. Cadbury then invests himself in his search for an affair more proactively by sending a letter in a bottle and writing about his attributes. It's basically a personal ad, telling about his desire to find someone to discuss religion and philosophy. Had Cadbury been a modern human, he would, of course, place this ad on an internet dating site or Craigslist. I guess now Craigslist, you can't do that anymore because uh, of the new uh, anti-human trafficking laws. But, you know, there's still plenty of places online. He could have posted this ad. Cadbury throws himself into the marketplace of love with an open heart and an open mind, right? Now, what he realizes by the end of the story is basically all these relationships are extensions of commodity exchanges. Notice with me that Cadbury is accepting of any woman who's not his wife at this point. And that might be true of many uh, adulterous uh, people just seeking anyone who's not their spouse for maybe not for a new relationship, but for a spark, the kind of a revival of, of a feeling of, of living life fully. The, what, what you feel when you're in love, right, for that first time. Indeed, throughout the story, he declares his love for people simply on the basis that they're not his wife. The woman who replies to his letter in the bottle is this Carol Stickyfoot, who happens to be a patient of the same psychiatrist as Cadbury. They happily discuss Zen Buddhism, and it, you know, which is what he wanted initially, or what he claimed to want in the original letter. At the very moment when they agree to try a relationship, Stickyfoot turns into three women. We learn that beauty for Cadbury is a radical unknown, the very opposite of his wife, which is known and, and understood. So he's got a very vague idea of what he wants to love. It's just the opposite of his wife. Now, here's the trick. When he confesses his love for her in person and commits himself to her, she changes into these three separate avatars. And that is, I think, 
Dick's very fairly pessimistic view of relationships. The three women that Sticky Foot turns into each give an appropriate level of devotion. The first will be the neutral companion who will live with him for a quote unspecified period. The best, perhaps, that a man can expect from a wife. The second woman is the motherly figure who won't live with him but will check in on his needs. And the third declares with resentment that she's bound to be him because he needs her. But she makes it clear that she might leave at any moment for a quote-unquote better deal. Immediately after this is established, they begin to demand prosperity and money from Cadbury, just like Hilda. right? Like Hilda, these women can only become a drain on Cadbury and his dreams. Now, they do offer like the blue chips that he wants, but the payment for that is basically a life of servitude to this institution. He realizes at this point that all three, no matter their individual differences, all desired really for their own life and for their own needs and were indifferent to the source of their survival. They didn't care who they were exploiting. They, they really come off more as leeches than anything else. Now, in this, on, in this story, of course, unpublished during Dick's lifetime, he maps out the central problem of the family in late capitalism. At best, we can only be familiar strangers to one another, never really knowing fully the other person. So you might as well randomly love people you meet on the internet because that's just as real as any other kind of love that's out there in this liquid reality, right? To death to us part is a joke. You know, most marriages fail now, or at least 50% of marriages fail. More and more people, that may be going down because more and more people are choosing not to marry. marry. Serial monogamy is the norm. So, you know, in large ways, our st the state raises our children, so the family's not needed for that anymore. We're, having, we're actually much more closer to hunter-gatherers in a lot of ways in this uberized gig economy. So the idea of the family as a financial unit is flawed. You know, young people nowadays who get married are, are not doing so from a foundation of wealth and prosperity and, and kind of expanding wealth. They often come into these marriages with debt, debts from the marriage, debt from schools, debts from buying a house and all that. So it's the whole, all the rules have changed, obviously. Our status depends much, still much on our job, though, and how effectively we display our success by decorating our small suburban prisons. Now, this is much more a 1950s, 60s critique of suburbia. I don't know how much of that applies to young people today. I think there's obviously less of a focus on conspicuous consumption. But in Dick's lifetime, certainly there still was that, you know, you have to have the best car and the best house and the most manicured lawn and all those things. So... Now, despite this lack of intimacy between each other, the, in the story in particular, the wife, the best wife is the neutral companion, the mo best mother rarely visits, and the best daughter can only look forward to leaving the bonds of her parental home. I mean, those are the three choices we got, right? A short-term neutral companion who will satisfy one needs temporarily, uh, you know, someone who can like care for the home, maybe, but be not, nothing else. There's no sexual desire there. And then someone who doesn't need you, right? You're too old for them. Now, we like Cadbury may have this deep desire to seek out others for companionship. This drives us to maybe singles bars or the internet or whatever. We take risks in the marketplace of love that maybe even risks we wouldn't take with money if we were to somehow quantify the risks we take with relationships. I mean, you know, think how often people risk like their marriage with uh, an adulterous relationship you know, but they wouldn't risk their like bank account on a on a roulette wheel, which you know essentially they're they're similar levels of risk. Many of us 
still beyond the statistical evidence showing that we're fated to be failures, marry. And that's a risk too, right? Going into a marriage knowing it's a coin flip at best. All right. We, I guess we all think we're going to buck the odds, but I, I, you know, most people who get married think they're going to stay married, I, su- I suppose, outside of marriage as a convenience. Dick himself searched his entire life for a relationship that was not based on the transfer of blue poker chips. At least it's what it seems. Um, and he seems to present it here as a kind of vulgar prostitution. I don't want to speak. I, I don't read the Dick biographies, so I don't want to speak too much on his relationships, but he did marry five times. So that's it. It's a really great story. It's a shame he didn't like polish it up and publish it during his lifetime. I um, I really like it. Um, I, I suggest reading it. It's, it's kind of a story a lot of people will miss, maybe, because it's not a famous one. It's not been anthologized in many places. It's a bit weird to read. You know, it's, you know, it's just, it's a bit odd. But I, I think it's worth looking at, if nothing else, as a capstone of the stories Dick wrote on, on adultery and monogamy and the family, which is, of course, an ongoing theme. He doesn't write that much more about it, I think, in the 70s. You know, I think it, there's hints of it in some stories, but in the scanner darkly, there's some hints about relationship, but those characters aren't married. There's uh, full my tears. You have kind of serial monogamy played with there, but it's not the theme. It was not as focused as it was in like in the mid sixties where you had now wait for last year and uh, the clans of the Elfane Moon and those novels that are heavily dealing with uh, the family. So it, it kind of closes up that chapter in Dick's writing. So yeah, check it out. Tell me what you think about it. Give your own thoughts. Uh, leave a comment or review, and you can give your comments there. About the story, you can send me an email at my main website, podcast email, 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, so thanks for joining me as I continue reading through the works of Philip K. Dick. We are kind of in the down, downhill path now. I mean, we're, we're in the 1970s, so there's not that many works to look at, just a handful of novels and, and stories. So we're getting to the end of this series, this podcast. It's been a lot of fun. I'm really excited to to finish this up and having, you know, achieved this. So thanks for supporting this and thanks for listening and thanks for sharing your opinions and views with me. So I'll see you next time with, uh, I do believe next up is a novel. Okay, so we've done The Maze of Death. We've done Our Friends from Folox 8. He didn't publish anything in 1971. He did write this story, though. So next is We Can Build You, uh, which I think was written way back like in the early 60s. Um, but it kind of works as a paired with Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. But it's it was, it was, it was written long before, and it wasn't published until 1974. So that, that will be next, We Can Build You. I think that's the only thing he published in 1972 as well. So, um, yeah. So next up, 1972 and We Can Build You. A really interesting story on, uh, in some ways, kind of the inverted of Duane's Dream of Electric Sheep, but it seems to exist in the same universe. Maybe a prequel uh, to that, even though it was written before Androids. Um, so if you're reading along, pick up that book and, and check it out. It's, it's really a, it's a fun one. So thanks, as always, for listening, and I'll see you next time. To feel these changes happening in me